This is Chirp, a podcast by Lernen wie Maschinen. I am Tina and your host today. We started this podcast as we are four women working in tech and AI who believe in inclusive technology. Every day, despite our best efforts, we see the perspectives of women and minorities considered as an afterthought, if at all. We want to connect with these communities and share their stories and break down the barriers they face, starting with our own stories. Hi, today's guest is one of the co-creators of Chirp, Shannon. Uh, she's a data scientist and member of the Georgia Tech MS Analytics Advisory Board. I hope I spelled that correctly <laughs> and pronounced that correctly. Uh, welcome, Shannon. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for conducting the interview, Tina. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to start with my favorite question. Um, so if your professional life until today would be a movie or a song, uh, which title would it have? Uh, I can't remember the, the title off the top of my head, but the song lyric is, uh, I get knocked down and I get back up again. It ain't never going to kick me down. That's basically, <laughs> okay. basically kind of my career path, I think. Uh, twists and turns. Yeah. But I, you just keep going. Okay, and, and why is that? Like, why are you having the feeling that you are kicked down and getting up again? Well, I just, you know, lots, like I said, lots of twists and turns. So I started as a, I've always been really ambitious, but I started and wanted to, wanted to kind of go into the diplomatic corps, you know, the American uh, Foreign Service. And then that's, you know, that's why I studied international affairs. Um, but then I saw, you know, Trump was coming was going to win the election, and that was not an administration I wanted to uh, to be part of. And I realized, you know, that was kind of the point where I realized politics and data are not completely mutually exclusive, but they are not found working together as often as maybe should be the case. Uh, and that's kind of when I decided to pivot and go, okay, I have a 3.9 in international affairs from Georgia Tech, and I, ha I speak fluent German. I did an internship in Germany. Um, I minored in economics, and we're not. I've published a paper on immigration before I even graduated, and we're not going to use that. We're going to do something different. Um, and so it's kind of like, okay, life took a turn, but let's keep going. So, okay, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, but it looks like you started your career in marketing. Is that correct? I did. So I, I started at the Home Depot as uh, at their corporate office as a. Oh gosh, as a contractor, and then I worked there for about a year and a half. Worked as a contractor, contracting analyst, and then was promoted to analyst as a full-time employee, and then senior analyst. Um, and at that point, I got a call from Coke Industries and, and you know changed companies. But yeah, you know, I, I, I graduated from tech with a degree in international affairs, not wanting to go into the foreign service anymore. Uh, and so I, I knew though that I wanted to do something more with data, data and data science, and that that would require a graduate degree. And so I, uh, I was very targeted with my job search. So um, it's been a twisty, turny path, but it's been planned every single step of the way. Sometimes the plans have changed, but uh, none of this has really been happenstance. Uh, for example, I live in, I live in Frankfurt, Germany now, uh, but I, I, I started learning to speak German 15 years ago. Um, and that was a plan that started 15 years ago. But yeah, so I, I started at uh, the Home Depot because I knew there were a lot of Georgia Tech engineers there, and we had a strong kind of alumni presence at the company. And so I said, okay, I have a good GPA, and I have the Georgia Tech brand name. Let's look at companies that like Georgia Tech engineer or that like Georgia Tech graduates, um, because they'll understand kind of what I can bring to the table, uh, and they'll be a little bit more amenable to kind of my career skill set sales pitch, right? Um, and so, so that was kind of tact one of the strategy of getting started. Um, tact two was, to be perfectly blunt, I went and LinkedIn stalked all of the alumni I could find from my college at Georgia Tech. So I went on LinkedIn and I found everybody that had graduated with international affairs in like the last four or five years. Um, and then I just started, you know, messaging people and seeing, okay, you know, hey, um, could they help me? Could I get an inter uh, informational interview with this person or that person? Um, and one of the person, one of those people worked as a recruiter um, uh, for Synergist, I believe was the name of the company at the time. And so I sent them a message on LinkedIn. I said, hey, um, there's a job at Home Depot I'm really interested in. Um, I see you're actually recruiting for that job. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it. Not like, hey, put me in, you know, get me the job. Just recruiters have an incentive to work with good candidates. She was 
you know, an alumni connection. So it made sense for her too, right? So I gave her a call. We had a good conversation. Turns out um, one of my good friends was working on the team that was hiring. And that same person was her good friend, so the recruiter's friend as well. Uh, and so then I had two people on my side. I had the recruiter, you know, who was kind of put me in the pipeline for the job. And then I had someone on the team who was on the team advocating for me, right? And then the, the head of the team was a Georgia Tech engineer as well. So again, that component already, already amenable to my slightly atypical skill set for an entry-level marketing role. Um, and it worked out. So. That's such an interesting strategy. I, I really uh, I really like it. So basically, you go on LinkedIn, you, you check out where your alumni are working, where other people you studied with are working now, um, or who, who visited the same uh, university, and then just uh, address them for, for any job requests. So that's, that's a pretty cool strategy. I like that a lot. Uh, it also sounds very American, to be fairly honest. Yes. <laughs> But I think it could potentially work everywhere. So it's, um, it's a really cool strategy. I like that. So... It Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to agree with you. It is it definitely this alumni affiliation kind of thing. I haven't seen that really exist here in Germany outside of one or two schools, really. And it's a missed opportunity, I believe. So I really like the system uh, or yeah, this learning from the US or how the American culture works regarding this. So but I what the other thing that uh, stood out for me is actually that you managed to make this transition from marketing into analytic analytics or an analyst role. And then I know you are now working in data science, so you even made this transition to data science. And I know that this is a very popular path <laughs> at the moment. So many marketers are trying to do the exact same thing um, due to the rise of uh, artificial intelligence. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how did you manage this transition? So what helped you to get from marketing to data science? So, so a big plus I had working for me was I had I went to the Georgia Institute of Technology, which is a school for engineers, primarily. Uh, and so all of my friends at university were engineers, you know, other than one or two. And okay. so you, you had to learn how to t talk about Python. You had to learn how to talk about a regression, you know, and some of these other things if you wanted to make friends. So I kind of came out of undergrad knowing how to talk the talk, but couldn't quite walk the walk. Um, I also had a minor in economics from Georgia Tech again. So. I already had a little bit of quantitative ability tucked into my CV there. So I had a credential, um, you know, working in my favor there. So that's a little bit of a unique advantage I had. But I've seen plenty of other political scientists make the same career move. I've seen plenty of other marketers make the same career move. Um, what really helped me was when I was on the marketing team at my first job is I was in Adobe Analytics every day pulling reports, um, talking to data scientists about like, okay, how does the data get in here? Um, you know, how does it end up in this nice clean little format that I then export and put into Excel, right? So being really curious and going out of your way to, this might be a bit American again, but going out of your way to grab coffee with some of these other teams, right? Um, and being curious about what they're doing because there, there's, there's always a breakdown between uh, the tech teams and the business teams. And the tech teams are, are just as eager to fix that breakdown as the business teams are and the marketing teams. So going out of your way and saying, hey, how's this work? Um, you can pick up some of that knowledge that you can then you know, apply at your day job or you can put, you know, you can use it to build something for GitHub or, or what have you. Um, so that was a strategy that I used a lot. I made it really clear to management you know, from day one that data science was where I wanted to be in three years. Uh, and so I had a lot of, um, My, my bosses went out of their way to help me with that as well. Um, you know, when I was a senior analyst, Mark Feynman, I don't know if we'll bleep this later, but Mark Feynman really went and recruited mentors for me and, and went out of his way uh, to make sure that I had the mentorship and the career advice that I needed to get where I wanted to go. Um, so that's another point. And then the last point was don't act, don't get defensive or, um, or seem surprised or downplay what you're doing in marketing. Marketing uses data as well. I mean, marketing's not going to get funding for a TV spot or for a radio spot or for a pad podcast um, you know, blurb unless there's data that says, hey, the podcast trends with our target audience. Um, the TV spot runs at you know, the time that single moms are watching, right? Uh, after the kids have gone to bed and that's our target audience. So marketing is data driven. 
but there's there's a slightly different balance for the skill set. So, so data scientists ha have to have a trio, right? Computers, computing, stats, and business. And they have a little bit of all three, basically. Um, and marketing focuses more on, okay, how do I put together the marketing plan? How do I reach people? And they use data to make those plans, right? And to make sure that those plans work. So at the beginning, I would get a lot of data, sci uh, data scientists or engineers that look at me and go, hey, you know, you're from marketing, what are you doing? And I, I would look at them back, I wouldn't flinch, and I'd say, what do you mean I'm from marketing? I have to use data too. This is not, <laughs> and I, I'd turn it back on them. And I'd say like, I don't know what you're thinking, you're crazy. I use data just as much. Maybe not as in sophisticated a fashion. Uh, you know, the math might not quite be there yet, but I can't just wander around and get a million dollars for something without showing why. <laughs> that's, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, so so to so, so summarize a little, what, what are your, um, let's say, secrets of success? <laughs> so first of all, you had a very good educational foundation already. Yeah, So you already had like a, some knowledge about um, engineering, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so second of all, you used the community network of a university to get into the right job. Um, you had a clear goal. You said you want to be in data science in three years, right? So you had like this time frame, and you communicated this to your to your boss. And then you were curious and asked a lot of questions, so to the data team. And then you clarified that there is this misconception um, that marketing isn't data driven sometimes in companies. So would you say that this is the most common misconception about marketing uh, and data, or? Is there another big misconception that you encountered while on your journey? So that, that's a great summary. And the, the biggest misconception that I've seen is that data scientists and engineering tend to think that these you know, data science tools and engineering tools just live in the engineering and tech teams. And that's not true. I've actually found harder bugs to solve writing, writing Excel formulas than some of the stuff I've seen in Python, right? Uh, so there's this idea that um, you have to pass kind of a certain intelligence bar to go into engineering and if you don't you go into marketing to put it perfectly bluntly um, and that's totally untrue like that's not the case you know I, I work with engineering teams sometimes and they come into the room and they already think um, okay we're better than the business team the business doesn't know what they're doing um, and so if if that's how you walk into a room neither team is going to be successful um, your engineering team will cut funding because you can't communicate why you need what you need and why you need it more than the business team. For example, um, we need more time on Amazon's cloud services than uh, you know the marketing team needs a, a TV spot or something, right? Um, you will never be successful if that is how your engineering leader walks into a meeting with the business. And that really is the most common misconception that I have seen. Um, and I now, can I've, confirm this actually from my point of view. <laughs> I've seen it from the uh, from the business side as well. Uh, don't get me wrong. You know, I've I've walked into rooms where the business has said, "Oh, you know, you don't need you don't need that much uh, that much data or that much time on the cloud services." I've got something in Excel, for example, that works just as well. That's actually a great example. But business and marketing love to work with Excel, and it's a good tool. But I've seen tools that the engineering team uses, um, just you know, a simple, simple, simple Python script. Uh, that's a lot faster. It's a lot easier to debug. Um, and you put that to work for you know, the, the business and the marketing team. I used that when I was at um, Coke Industries. Just we had a bunch of disparate Excel files and I wrote a really, it was like a 50 line Python script to just put them on one file for me. So uh, yeah, so this is, there's a lot of tools that come from both areas that can be useful to each other. But people walk into the room already decided they're not gonna understand me um, and they already walk in butting heads. So you would say bias is kind of a common challenge when it comes to collaborations between marketing and uh, tech teams? Bias is one way to put it. Um, honestly, I'd, I'd, put it, I'd put it slightly differently. It's, it's not bias because bias implies that it's kind of unconscious. Mm -hmm. It's a conscious decision from many teams walking into the room that the other person they have to have a conversation with doesn't understand what's happening. That's really the most common misconception. Um, and so one, one thing that I would do at Coke Industries a lot to, to kind of get around this is I would come in from the business side. I worked there actually on the sales team. And I would walk in. Uh, I was doing a little bit of programming then already. I'd started on my master's part-time. Um, so it was, it was great. I would go to university. I'd take a couple of classes. And I'd come turn around, drive up to Kennesaw, and immediately implement 
everything for school for the business. So it, it was great. It was really. What kind of master what were you doing? What was the subject of your master? Uh, the master's program was the MS uh, analytics program at Georgia Tech. And so that that's an interdisciplinary program. Mm -hmm. You take classes from the College of Business, the classes, uh, classes from the College of Computing, um, and classes from the School of ISYE as well, uh, Industrial and Systems Engineering. And you just mentioned that you were um, implementing basically your learnings directly into your, into your job. Um, so do you think that's, you know, one success criteria to actually manage studying next to a full, was it a full-time or part-time position? Full-time. Full-time. Full -time. Oh, that's massive. So I uh, do you think like studying something that you can then use in your job is a criteria to actually manage the, du the double workload, so the high workload between, you know, studying and working? Exactly. So I was really fortunate. Here's kind of where I got, I got thrown a bit of good luck from life. I was working at Home Depot. Um, I was waiting to hear back from Georgia Tech and Coke Industries called me out of the blue and said, hey, we have a good, we have a role. We think you might be a good fit. Come talk to us. And so for me, it was really low pressure. I was like, sure, you always take the interview. It's great interviewing experience at the very least. And you might get a couple of good contacts or you might find a role that your friend's a good fit for. Right. So always take the interview, especially when it's low pressure. Um, so I walked into, into that interview, low pressure, had a great conversation with a couple of people. I walked out of the interview, and two hours later, I got the email I was accepted to Georgia Tech. <laughs> so I just aced the interview, <laughs> and I got accepted to graduate school. Wow. So they call me back a couple days later, and they say, hey, we want to make you an offer. And I said, well, okay, okay guys, we've got a problem here, because I think I could do a lot for you. I think it could really modernize some of, um, the th some of the processes that you have. But I got accepted to graduate school at Tech. And I'm definitely going. But I proposed kind of a, a middle road, which was I, I do my studies at Tech part-time, and I work full-time for Coke Industries. And so this all went down, I believe, in, in May 2017. And my studies weren't due to start until mid-August 2017. Mm -hmm. So I had enough time to get onboarded at the role as well. Right? Okay. Um, and again, having been at Tech, I kind of knew a little bit of what to expect. And I was able to ask for some extra flexibility. So, for example, I got a three week. I had three weeks vacation, uh, which in the U.S. for somebody with two or three years' experience is, at that time at least, uh, was a pretty big deal. It's a lot, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I said, look, I'm going to have school. Um, I'm going to need some flexible hours here too, right? There might be classes during the day. I can't guarantee I'll get an 8 a.m. class and be online by nine, um, but I can guarantee the work will get done. And I have three months to prove to you that the work will get done. Right, so it was kind of low risk for them. Either they, they could get a little bit of work out of me for three months, I could learn the job. If it didn't work out, I'd just go to graduate school full time, and they were no further behind in their search, really, right? Yes. So, so for me, having the support of my management and understanding that things will get done, but maybe not in this traditional time frame, um, that was huge. And the understanding that I'm bringing something different to the table, right? I'm bringing new knowledge and cutting edge techniques from one of the best universities in the country to modernize systems. So it's coming straight from the laboratory, basically, right? Yeah, that's pretty strong. It's a pretty strong. And so that pitch. was a, that's a really good business case. And, and Coke yeah. Industries also, they are really good at thinking outside of the box. Um, I, I learned a lot just about how to approach business problems and kind of come up with these unique solutions when I worked for them, right? And so say, hey, we want to make this work. It's not going to work inside the, the normal box. How can we, how can we change the box, right? Uh, and that's that's something that's quite unique to that company, I would say. Awesome. I was talking about uh, thinking outside of the box. <laughs> um, if we if we briefly get back to the topic of um, creative departments or marketing departments collaborating with with tech departments, uh, after you had all this experience. Um, in working in both areas, what advice would you share with both sides that enables a successful collaboration? So I, I would really recommend both sides do kind of a buzzword session. That's what I call it. A buzzword session. A buzzword session. What's that? So what that means is you literally take like all these tools that you'll see like TechCrunch or LinkedIn, like throw around like TensorFlow and Docker and Python and blah, blah, blah. And people will just like throw them out because they're eye catching. Um, but if you're, for example, your product owner is sitting with you in the daily scrum, you know, your daily 15 minute meeting with the tech team, um, they, 
like you can't expect them to know what all of that is. You can't expect them to program something in Python. But if you say, hey, Tensor, TensorFlow released a patch or TensorFlow released an update, they have to understand that that means things the sprint might go a little more slowly, right? Because TensorFlow updates, it's a, it's a library for Python, you know, the programming language. They are not necessarily predictable. Um, so by that I mean a, a lot of things that used to work will break uh, when, you, when you update to the latest version. And we saw that happen quite a bit last year. And so this is important knowledge for the product owner, right? They don't need to know what's broken, but they need to understand that a TensorFlow update implies less progress in this sprint, I right? See. And so that's kind of what I would do. I, I just take an hour with somebody from the business side and I say, I, I give them basically a glossary of here are the different terms that you need to kind of have in the back of your mind. Here's what they imply, right? Um, and so we did that several times to good success um, at my company uh, at DTMS. And so that's one side and the same goes for marketing, right? So if you're saying I have a marketing plan or I'm, um, I'm putting together an analysis, show the tech team what that means, right? Show them all the effort that goes into that so that they understand that you're using data and that you're making data-driven decisions, right? And they understand this isn't just some request that you've pulled out of the back of your pocket. You know, you spent four to six weeks analyzing stuff to, to come to this conclusion. That was a conversation we had at, at Home Depot where the marketing team had put together a huge plan uh, as to how, to how to redesign a chunk of the website. And the, the, um, the web designers didn't understand that this was a six-week analysis. You know, we weren't just coming from the, the, the marketing side or from the sales side and saying, hey, customers are looking for this because we have some gut feeling from the market. You know, we did six weeks of analysis before we even went and talked to them. And that was something they had no idea about. And so when we said, hey, we have a reason for why we're asking for this really difficult, annoying uh, page redesign, they said, oh, okay, this, this makes more sense. You know, I'm willing to put some effort into this if I know I'm not yeah. going to have to change it willy-nilly next week. So right? it's basically about learning to speak each other's language. Yes, that's exactly right. So, I mean, what I was thinking about when you were mentioning TensorFlow and the dependency on, on changes in TensorFlow, I was actually thinking about uh, SEO, search engine optimization. So, because it's dependent mostly on what Google does and how the Google algorithm changes. And if you're basically also dependent on an external uh, yeah, tool, let's say, or um, information source um, that changes independently you cannot influence it and but you have to adjust your work and your strategy to it so that sounds a little bit similar to to what you described with tensorflow so maybe it's even possible to find similar examples or similar patterns on both sides to make you know to ensure both sides understands what you are talking about would you see that as a similar thing or would you say that's that's different that's that's exactly very much in the same line of what i was trying to get at um, but, but critical is that both sides walk into the room, you know, the tech team and the business team and the marketing team, they all walk into the room with the understanding that they're missing something. I mean, that is really critical to the conversation. You have to walk into the room with the understanding and the expectation you're seeing at most 70% of the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. Because only then are you open to hearing about some of the mistakes that you may have made or, or looking for some of the mistakes and misconceptions from the other side as well. Because if the under, at the end of the day, if the understanding, if the other team is not understanding what you're doing and why you're asking for what you're asking for, that's on you. That means you haven't communicated your proposal well enough and you haven't understood your audience. So, and that's, mm -hmm. sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it goes for business, uh, but it goes for engineering as well. Um, and, and both sides kind of have to meet in the middle. So right? it is really important to be and stay open-minded and to ask a lot of questions. Stay open-minded, stay humble, and stay curious. Okay. Those are the three most important things. And that's, honestly, those are probably the three things I take with me every day into work and that have gotten me where I am in my career is I've understood I don't know everything, but I want to learn it, right? So there's the humility and the curiosity. Um, and you go after it, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I know personally that it's sometimes very hard to fight 
misconceptions or as I call it bias. So if there's like if you're working with whatever other department and they are just simply having already an opinion about you because you're from a certain area of expertise, um, it is very hard to handle situations like this because I feel like you always have to prove um, the opposite. So exactly. yeah, and that's, that makes it really, really annoying and it also wastes a lot of time. So I, I totally agree with you. It would be really cool if, if both sides would be, um, yeah, open-minded for for each other's unique challenges. <laughs> so that's so. So again, I, I realize I, I kind of just described this ideal world where everybody's open-minded and everybody's really humble and everybody just <laughs> wants to learn. Um, but that exactly the point you just spoke to, it it hits on what I said a little bit earlier, which is where when the engineering team would say, "Well, what are you asking this for? You're for marketing," I'd flip it onto them and say, "Hey, what do you mean? What am I asking for this? Uh, why am I asking for this?" I have a million dollar proposal. You think I'm gonna walk in to a manager, a president, excuse me, vice president or a director at Home Depot without solid data backing why I'm asking for $500,000, a million dollars? <laughs> and you flip it back on them and you say, I'm not the, you say it with, with your body language um, or over Zoom without actually putting words to it. And you essentially go, I'm not the crazy one in this room, buddy. <laughs> Well, you know, that sounds again very American and that actually brings me to my next questions. Like because you worked in the US and in Germany in, in companies in both in both countries, like what are the biggest corporate cultural differences that you experienced? So 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 Depot is very data driven. Um and uh but but if you have the data for it, they're willing to go after something. Um so they, they put kind of this old school gut feeling concept totally to the side. A gut feeling is a perfect, perfectly good reason to go analyze something and get data, but it's not a good reason to make a decision or pull the trigger on something, right? And so that was, that was again, kind of, I worked a little bit on that cultural shift um, when I was at Coke Industries. And so here in Germany, I'm still seeing a bit of skepticism with the data. So, well, is, is that really enough data to disprove my gut feeling, right? Maybe we need more. And so this, uh, there's a term for it, actually. It's analysis paralysis, right? So we're, we're working in Germany. What I've seen so far is we're working towards the point of analysis paralysis, where um, right now it's still a lot of gut feeling driven. That's the sense that I have. And we're working towards the point where we say, OK, that makes sense because you've shown me data where it makes sense, but I need more, right? And at some point, you have to pull the trigger because if you analyze everything, the opportunity passes you by, right? So, okay. That's so there's this, this risk, there's a different attitude towards risk on the two different continents, right? So, and again, I'm going to speak to mostly to Germany because there's, you can't say German perspective represents all of Europe. That's completely inaccurate. But, uh, but in the U.S., it's like, okay, let's get some data. Let's try something out. And if it fails, we've learned something, right? If it fails, mm -hmm. that's fine. You know, uh, but but in the U.S. also the venture capital is a little easier to come by, uh, based on the readings that I've done, and so that's perfectly fine, right? Because everybody's learned something. The venture capitalists have learned something as well, and in in Germany, it's a very risk averse culture is the sense that I have, and so you really want to be sure before you move forward, right? And so this concept of um, try, fail, learn, repeat is not getting a lot of traction. And that's a lot of what you see in the US. You know, Let's try it out. Let's go for it. Um, and if we fail, so what we've learned. Mm -hmm. you know, Google has whole projects that they'll fund tons of money into, and they'll fail. So sometimes they become new products. Most of the time, they fail completely. And sometimes the, the new products become features of something existing. OK. Um, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. So OK, I get it. So you're saying, but did I understood it correctly that you are saying that also the U.S. or American companies are already a little bit more data driven? Because you said, I think, um, that you see more decisions made on or based on gut feeding in um, in Germany than in the so U.S. That's the sense that I have gotten. That's kind of my gut feeling there, because uh, since since I moved to Germany, I've worked. Uh, on the technology side. So I've interacted with the marketing teams a bit, um, but I haven't 
I haven't worked in, on a marketing team here. And uh, my previous job, I didn't have the opportunity to do that as much, mostly, honestly, because <laughs> corona intervened and I was no longer in the office. I couldn't just pop by and ask a question. But I can give an example. Um, we had a conference that we would go to regularly at the old, at the old um, company, or excuse me, at my previous company. And, you know, we, we would build this giant stand for the conference. Hmm. Um, and we would, we would spend a ton of money, you know, six-figure sum of money to go to this conference, get everybody there, build the stand. Um, but I never heard exactly, you know, how many leads were generated from that. Nobody went and quantified that. Um, and I remember I was in a meeting and someone says, you know, this other company, this other competitor of ours has decided that it's not worth it for them to go to the conference, you know, this year. Um, and we don't believe that. We believe, right, Yeah. that, you know, going to this conference generates more leads, generates more business for us. But that sounds, thinking, that, sorry to interrupt, but that sounds yeah. like they are actually pretty open to taking risks. <laughs> That's true, right? So, but it, but it, it depends, right? Um, Because if you, quote unquote, know, because you have a strong gut feeling about it, that's the data point essentially that you're working off, off of. And it doesn't seem like a risk, right? Because you're confident that it will succeed based on your gut feeling. And so when I, when, I, when I talk about risk, I talk about something where you go, I'm gonna invest a couple of bucks into this. It might work, it might not, right? Mm -hmm. But if it works, it's a huge win. I get more customers, um, I get more visibility, something like that, right? Um, so, so again, you know, when I worked at Depot, I was a, I was a contractor, an analyst, a senior analyst. When I worked at Coke Industries, I, I had a bit more visibility, particularly because I was bringing all this, this knowledge from Georgia Tech. Uh, I had a bit more visibility, uh, a bit more contact with where some of these decisions were getting made. Um, and at Coke Industries, we saw, okay, you know, that, that's something I saw frequently. You'd bring something to the table, you'd bring the data to the table, and you'd say, look, if this works, we're really going to be, you know, it's a big win for the company. But I can't guarantee that it will. You know, it has a 30% chance of working, say, right? That's what I mean with risk, where I've, I've brought data to this table and I've said, if this works, right, it'll be a big win. And I'm, you know, it, and uh, there's a 30% chance of it working. That's what I mean with risk. You're betting on that 30%, right? Whereas here... Here in Germany, I've seen, okay, I'm confident, so I'm 75% sure that this will work. Therefore, I will make the decision and I will go forward, right? That's not, I don't consider that risky, right? Yeah, no, I get your point. So what, what I observed in, in companies um, that I've been working for is that data, the, the role data plays depends on the company size. So if, if I was working in, in big companies and uh, large uh, enterprise uh, companies, data was playing a really big role and um, data was really important and everyone was also um, trained to work with data and use data for decision making, et cetera, et cetera. And there was also if uh, the, the attitude that if you want to suggest something new, something completely new, you need data to prove that it's worth it, right? So, but if, uh, when I was working in smaller companies, let's say in very young startups, data was not the first thing they took care of. It was actually something um, that happened like as a second or third step to, to hire someone who looks into data. Um, and it's, it, it became pretty problematic for me because when I was uh, building teams from scratch, marketing teams from scratch, working without data is really, really risky in itself because you are making decisions <laughs> based on experience or gut feeling and not based on data, or you don't have clean data or not enough data um, to know in which direction you should be heading. So um, I don't know, because you said you worked for Home Depot and Coke in the US, and these are pretty big companies, right? So do you think company size might be a factor on how open you are to use data and work with data? I definitely think that's part of it. And I, I also think the, the keyword startup uh, is important as well, because if you're a startup, you're, you're trying to get something onto the market at all. You're trying to get visibility. It's a new product. Um, and you've done, presumably, a lot of research before you built, before you founded the company, right? And before you started building. And so, so a lot of this, I'll call it more finer grained analysis uh, for specific decisions 
uh, will get lost and, and you won't have data to support some of those decisions uh, because you're still working on getting the big picture going, right? And you, you don't have capacity for that. Um, so the company that I'm moving into now, they're about three years old or so, so they're very much still in the startup phase, and I'm their first data science hire because, again, they were, they were just trying to get something off of the ground and moving. You know, now the product is, you know, they've said, okay, we're making money. Okay, we have customers. Okay, let's get smart about it, right? So the general direction up till now has been correct, right? So yep. thumbs up, thumbs down, we're at thumbs up, right? And now we wanna get smart about the direction we're moving in, right? So we wanna get more efficient. Uh, we wanna make smarter decisions. And, and we basically, you know, I was talking about this 30% you know, 30% chance of success. We want to see, you know, from this overall strategy we bring to the table now, how can we grow that 30% chance of success into 60 or 70% chance of success, right? Where you can say, okay, this is a risk. Uh, I have data showing me this could be a big win. Uh, I have data showing me this is probably our best option. And I have an understanding of the market, right? So I have qualitative data. That's essentially what a gut feeling is, right? It's qualitative data, it's your combined experiences that tell you this is a good decision to make, right? And so now the company I'm moving to is at the point where they want to make those kinds of decisions and, and shave off some of this risk, right? But data, uh, company size absolutely plays a role and company, company age also plays a role as well. The industry you're in, um, you know, retail moves very, very quickly. Uh, you look at Wayfair, how they've grown, mm -hmm. uh, their analytics teams, but, um, you know, what, what is it? Manufacturing moves a little bit more slowly, right? In part because you have huge machines uh, <laughs> that you have capital tied into, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about building an oil pipeline or a wind farm, you're talking 10 years, easy, right? Once the yes. land's purchased, once the machines are purchased, you're committed. That's I mean, true. You, you've got to, we've got to work with decisions you've made five years ago, right? You can't pivot quite as much. Now, I'm not saying Home Depot can sell all of their offices or sell their, you know, 2,000 stores across the country and pivot in a day and become something else. Um, but I'm saying that compared to some of these sunk costs uh, where in previous decisions in, in large-scale manufacturing, comparatively, they're a little bit more flexible. So this flexibility also plays a role, right? Absolutely. You don't care if you can't, if, you, if you're embarking on a strategy, it's kind of done. <laughs> uh, and you've, you've got to be able to look five to seven years down the line and, and getting data that can inform where something will be or, or where an industry will be five to seven years from now is exceedingly difficult. Um, Absolutely. It's, I would even say it's impossible. <laughs> and that's, that's where you move more towards, um, well, that, that, there are different ways of ana uh, analyzing that and getting data. But it, it, it's not coming from a database. Uh, but that's a different discussion. Yeah, that's true. Um, I actually um, wanted to ask, like, if there's anything German tech companies can learn from the American ones regarding cultures um, and the other way around. Is, is there, if you would, like, get one learning from the US and you would be able to teach that learning to a tech leader in Germany, uh, what would that be? So one one learning from both sides. So honestly, I would I would kind of go back to this concept of risk again. I think, or or actually, I take that back. I think openness and, and hierarchy, right? So in the U.S., um, there's this move towards a flat hierarchy where everybody's kind of an equal, or you have um, a first among equals. Is essentially what the team lead is, right? Uh, but sometimes, sometimes a team lead just has more experience. And especially in a startup, you need to move quickly. And so sometimes the team lead needs to be able to make a decision. And everybody needs to fall in line for that, right? So there's kind of, hierarchy isn't necessarily a bad thing, is what I'm saying. And that's a lot of what I've seen in Germany, is it's, again, I'm, the company that I'm working from now, um, the hierarchy's been important there, right? So by the same token, Sometimes you've brought somebody from the US, for example, um, who has a completely different perspective, right? And you wanna, you wanna pick their brain on something mm -hmm. um, and you wanna bring their experience and their perspective to the table, but they're, 
for myself, for example, I'm an analyst or a, a relatively entry level still um, uh, developer. I'm not automatically invited to meetings with VPs, right? Uh, and that's, sometimes that's correct. I mean, I would say a lot of times that's correct, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes, you know, I'm, you might have a developer, they're far, far down the chain from where you are, but they have good ideas, right? And so how they propose executing those ideas may not be so good because they don't have the experience that you have. But the ideas are good. They're solid. Those are things you want to bring into the room. Those are things you want to have in planning meetings and strategy meetings, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, I, I had that when I was at Coke. I had that when I was at Depot. Um, I get called into meetings with leadership sometimes just because I brought a different perspective and I had a good idea, right? And so getting these good ideas spread throughout the company is really important. And a hierarchy, a strict hierarchy, doesn't necessarily allow for that, right? True. I mean, I don't know. I had, I had, uh, when I was working at Zalando, I was actually, that is a company that has a clear hierarchy. You, you cannot uh, claim anything else. So, um, and basically what they did is they, they were totally open for new ideas. You were able to pitch new ideas to a dedicated group of people who was just there to, you know, collect new ideas. And if uh, you were able to convince them by pitching them the idea to them, uh, you got like resources to investigate the idea. Um, so, I mean, just thinking out loud right now, it, it sounds to me a little bit, or it was a little bit like you were taken out of the hierarchy. You were, no matter on which position you were, you could voice your idea, vocalize your idea, and then basically uh, step out of your role get resources to investigate your ideas completely independent from which level you were working at before. So yeah, I mean, again, just thinking out loud, I think you're right with a hierarchy might be uh, something that could potentially block ideas and it's better to, to enable people to step out of the hierarchy. So could, let's, frame it, let's frame your question slightly differently than it may, because it, it's, it's kind of two extremes the way I just phrased it. And so a better middle road, it's not necessarily a learning from one side for the other and then vice versa. It's kind of a better middle road based on the experiences I've had so far uh, working across the continents. Uh, a better middle way is just making sure that employees at all levels have a way to voice their ideas. A suggestion box if you want to go real old school back to the elementary school about it, right? <laughs> and so have, a, <laughs> have an adult modernized, probably digitalized version of a suggestion box, right? Because you've hired people to the company because they're smart and they're gonna provide value to the company. So give them a way to do that, right? Yeah, totally agree. People, people are always more motivated when they have a stake in something, right? So that's so true. And it actually brings me to the next uh, topic pretty, pretty directly because um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, you know, if you if you want to pitch an idea, you need to be confident enough to talk about it, right? You need to be you feel you need to feel um, that you are in an open environment where you can talk about certain things, right? Um, and sometimes that's that's a challenge, specifically when we talk about um, diversity. So, is there is there anything? Um, in both countries that, that you observed and is there a difference in how they deal both countries with inclusion and diversity in the tech industry? So, so it's interesting because bo both, both areas and both regions are still struggling with this topic, right? Um, when I was at Depot, I didn't belong to a diversity group or anything like that at the time, but I know that they had an LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus group uh, to make sure that that community, which is marginalized and underrepresented, especially in the Southeast, um, had a place to come together and they could present a united front, right? Now, again, I was not part of that group. I don't wanna speak to that group. Uh, I don't know exactly what they got up to, right? But to me, that concept of, of giving employees a space to, where they can come together, and then if there's a problem, they can present a united front, 
I think that's important, right? Because then it's not just you, or it's not just me, Shannon, coming to management and saying, hey, uh, we have one woman in the technical department. Maybe we want to reconsider our hiring practices here, Um, right? Then you have a couple. But again, I just said it, right? You know, if you're at a smaller company, you may be the only woman in the technical department. And that may be a conversation that you have to have. So, you know, that's kind of, that's one of the reasons I actually, that we met, Tina, is because I was the only woman in the technical department, (laughs) and there were issues I didn't know how to solve myself, and I didn't know how to frame them, and I didn't, but I knew I didn't want to leave them for somebody else to, to have to go through or tackle, right? So companies, if you're smaller, um, work with external partners, right? And I'm not saying find a paid company, um, find an NGO, find a volunteer organization, right? And utilize their expertise. But again, there's this, you have to be intellectually honest about it. And if you say, I'm going to create a diversity group, and I'm going to partner with an NGO to fix this problem in my organization, small or large, you have to give them decision-making authority. And when they present a strategy or a problem to you, you have to be willing to accept it. So, so and, and that's that's the concept that I see on both sides um, that bo- everybody's kind of grappling with is uh, it's almost like giving over a little bit of power <laughs> to, to, to a non-stakeholder for your organization, right? And you're giving them a decision-making authority in your business. It reminds me a little bit of what um, Sarah said in, in our last interview. She said the most important thing is to find uh, allies. So yes. uh, people you can connect with, a network, uh, being it uh, within the same workplace or being it uh, beyond that. So, for example, within an NGO um, supporting a shared vision. So, yeah, that's, that sounds very similar. So you say both countries are still working on that one. Um, so, you know, what what would need to change to, to make that happen? So is, is, um, is there any advice you could share? Or did you see a good example somewhere where it worked out pretty well? Honestly, the, you know, we mentioned it is we're frequently alone and we're marginalized. And if, if you can get just, for example, two women on the technical team that can talk to each other, it gives them a way of validating each other. But the only way that'll happen is if we get more people into the pipeline. So we have more women in the technical pipeline that graduate from university, that work in entry-level developer roles, and that want to move up and put in the work to move up and deal with the crap that most of us have to deal with to move up. And so as much as it's nice to have you know, allies to work with, a, a group that you can kind of get together and present a united front, sometimes you're going to have to do it on your own. Right? That's very true. Uh, yeah. And so the only the thing that we can do as as women or people in industry that belong to some of these underrepresented groups is we can not just look forwards but look backwards right so not just where do we want to go but where did we come from and that's that's a big reason why i wanted to join or i was i was thrilled to be asked to join uh, the ms analytics uh, advisory board is because that gives me a chance to look backward and say here are the mistakes i've made and let me help students prevent the, prevent students from making the same ones. They'll make different ones. But let me hand on some of this hard-earned wisdom and knowledge and experience. And so that's, I'm actually working with Georgia Tech to organize an event for, uh, for women in the fall. Um, it'll be the first one that I know of uh, for the MS Analytics program. But it's to talk to women in the program and say, hey, here are some of the things that you'll experience. I've seen, I've seen bias and sexism on the sales and marketing side. I've experienced it there firsthand, and I've experienced it as well in the tech, uh, on the tech side as well. So it's not like this is exclusive to tech, this problem of, of bias. Um, but you are more likely to experience it uh, if you work as a woman or a minority in tech. Uh, and having these conversations earlier on and not shying away from them and saying, hey, we have a diversity group. You know, no, dig into it. Let's look at the problem. Let's give students and people concrete skills and strategies to deal with it. So right? it's, about, it's a lot about knowledge sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. 
So find your network, find your community, be it at work or beyond work, um, and exchange knowledge, exchange experiences, find solutions together, basically. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and it's, it's knowledge sharing. So, so looking backwards to people that look like you and helping them avoid the same mistakes that you've made, uh, but also knowledge sharing in, for example, my, my colleagues at DTMS and saying, hey, you know, you're making jokes about this, you're, you're, you're not taking this seriously, but I've experienced that. That is a situation that I had to suffer through. And I lost a career opportunity because of it. And so putting yourself in a vulnerable position like that and watching people's eyebrows shoot off their face, um, because making it concrete for people as well and taking it out of this kind of academic, um, disconnected discussion and bringing it home, that's also an important part of what needs to be done. It's not just some person that's experienced it. It's somebody that you know. It's your friend. It's your mentor. It's uh, your sister or you know, just, just bringing it closer to home, right? Again, so that you have a stake in the game. So here it sounds like we need to rely more on emotional experience, on emotional data. Yeah. As much as I'm a data scientist, <laughs> sometimes you can't quantify everything. Uh, I won't go in into it too much, but uh, there's a, a happiness scale in how to measure happiness and fulfillment. That's a whole discussion because <laughs> happiness is completely subjective, right? Yes. And how do you measure that? So, but that's a, that's a great point actually. Is uh, as much as I love my statistics and my data sets and my numbers and working with Python and R to to, to prove things. Uh, you spoke to it earlier as well. You just don't have data for everything. Uh, and you, you let the data take, as, take you as far as you can in the correct direction, but then the experience comes into play and it's qualitative data rather than quantitative data. Yeah. Right? So in the end, you need both for the perfect result. <laughs> or as, as close to a perfect result as you can. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> Great. I think that's that's been... Um really good last words for this uh, postcard episode podcast episode um thank you so much shannon for your time and, yeah happy uh, to happy to help let's, <laughs> let's follow up on that yeah yeah <laughs> okay. bye 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 that was another episode from chirp a podcast by lernen wie maschinen thank you for listening i will share all the important links in the show notes And I'm happy to read your feedback. So shoot me an email. Also, the email address is in the show notes. And if you have a story to tell about women and minorities in tech or AI, feel free to write me as well. Talk to you soon. <laughs>